I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Spandrew Spice. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Pimp My Ride. What is Pimp My Ride? Well, it was an American television series produced by MTV and hosted by rapper Exhibit. The show ran for six seasons from 2004 to 2007 and was extremely popular, quickly becoming one of the most iconic TV shows of the mid-2000s. The show revolved around a simple premise. Participants would submit their dilapidated vehicles and those chosen would receive full automotive makeovers. The cars would be restored in extravagant fashion with flashy paint jobs, fiberglass body kits, and absurdly impractical new features which reflected the owner's personalities. Unfortunately for the participants, however, the only real part of this show was that their actual daily drivers were just used to make these automotive monstrosities. one from spinners to spoilers the absurdity of car culture in the early 2000s whether you grew up obsessed with cars or have always seen them as a mere appliance it is undeniable that they have played a massive role in popular culture for over a century now their ubiquity is astonishing most of us see hundreds of cars on a daily basis and entire metropolitan areas have risen and fallen alongside the automotive factories that built them for better or worse, cars are an integral part of both how we built the modern world and how we maintain it. From shipping goods to shuffling our tired bodies to and from work, cars play a massive role in the continued generation of capital and its flow into every paved corner of our society, particularly here in the US where most of our cities are designed around personal vehicles and generally neglect public transit. Dreary as that may be, cars also embody a sense of freedom and autonomy, allowing us to explore our surroundings and reach the various amenities that make modern life bearable. Their omnipresence would be justified by sheer utility alone, but humans being humans, cars have also proven to be extremely easy objects for our brains to form attachments to. This makes sense, of course. Like most things we tend to covet, cars can signal towards one's social class, lifestyle, and even personality. They are the accessory you might be seen in more than any other. Our trusty steeds reflect the amount of care we put into them, and they are often genuine characters in our lives, retaining decades worth of memories amongst their stained seats and saggy headliners. It comes as no surprise then that a large portion of society has always felt the need to modify their cars to better suit their needs and aesthetics. Before we get into uh, the topic at hand, just kind of reflecting on this little this little ex- exploration of car culture. Uh, what was your first car, Dave? My first car was a 2000 or 1999 uh, Toyota Corolla. Yeah, it was it was bought used from some snowbirds in Tucson, Arizona. They were from Chicago. And they had driven it there and then retired, and I bought it there, and it was a that thing was a war horse, man. You could you could have driven that shit through a war zone, and it would have been fucking fine, baby. It's so funny that you say that. It's so funny that you say that. Tell me, tell me, yours was all the same. Was it the same? Well, kind of, not exactly, but it's so funny because in many ways we are very different people, but in like a bunch of ways. We are just the same guy. Like on paper, we're the same guy. My first car was not from some snowbirds in Arizona. 
actually my first car I ever had was uh, some a car that I bought for my grandpa for $3,000. When you buy an, a car from an old person, that shit is immaculate. It's like the best taken care of and running car you've ever had. It's like, it's perfect. And then within like two months, you've just ran it into the ground. And now, and it's a piece of shit now. Is that your experience with your first car? I understand what you're saying of just like, there's so much care and, and energy put into maintaining it. And then you're just like, Fuck it. Here we go, baby. <laughs> In my situation, the one little thing that my grandpa basically said was like, it's got a little bit of an oil leak. So you kind of have to be on top of, you got to top it off with oil every once in a while just to make sure it doesn't, that, that it, it doesn't go dry. And I did not keep on top of that shit. And one night I was driving the car on a, on a trip, a four hour drive from Santa Cruz, California to Bakersfield, California. And I had put oil in it on the way there. And I just did not expect that in just that trip, just that four hour trip would have been enough. And I would have needed to get more oil there. So I didn't do that. And I drove it back. And apparently the fucking thing was bone dry and uh, the head gasket blew and it was it was totaled completely my fault damn that's fucked up yeah no i had mine for years i had mine for fucking years well yeah i had i had it for a couple years but its undoing was at my hand in the early 2000s car customization entered the mainstream in a massive way countless music videos flaunted flashy cars on oversized chrome rims commercials about completely unrelated products featured cartoonish street racer style tuner cars and of course new episodes of pimp my ride aired every week during mtv's most popular programming block Sunday stew. So you want to be a player, but your wheels ain't fly. You got to hit us up to get a pimped out ride. Damn right. That is so fucking 2000s. Dude, for real. It's funny. I was having flashbacks watching that. I was like, I remember this like vividly, like vividly. I don't give two fucks about cars. I watched so many episodes of that show. Each episode followed the same simple yet effective format. Exhibit would open the show with a quick pun-filled overview of the contestant's car, followed by the show's instantly iconic theme song. After which, the audience was presented with a submission tape where the episode's contestant pled their case for why they desperately needed to have their ride pimped. Exhibit would then approach the contestant's home, cracking jokes about the car before finally knocking on the door to surprise them. After being nearly tackled to the ground by the contestant's quintessentially over-the-top reactions, the two of them would inspect the car together in greater detail. For many people, this was one of the best parts of the show, as Exhibit managed to make fun of the cars and their owners while never coming off as mean-spirited or patronizing. In fact, Exhibit never came off as anything but as a nice, easygoing guy who wasn't afraid to be goofy on camera. And now uh, we're going to consult Old Faithful um, for any time you're ever looking for full episodes of things that are not available elsewhere and you can't easily find streaming. Uh, we're going to look at Daily Motion and we're going to watch a little bit of uh, an episode of, of Pimp My Ride. Daily Motion is just the wild west of the internet where like all of the last decade's worth of copyright infringement laws and rules about stuff being on platforms just never touched this website. Let's go. Yeah, man. 
All right, back in the day, the Chevy C10 set the standard for tough trucks. But in present day, the only thing tough about Heather's C10 is looking at it. Now it's time for the tough to get going. I'm about to pimp her ride. Let's go. Okay, this has like a cow theme going on. Man, this truck got hoes. I'm talking about the gardening tool. Okay, relax. Oh, damn. Guess what? I got some more hoes. <laughs> we got two hoes at the same time. One looks a little cleaner than the other one. I always use the clean hoe. <laughs> Gardening tools, y'all. <laughs> Look. I've accidentally stumbled upon the most dated possible episode of the show. <laughs> also, can we can we just talk for a split second about the fact that this show was so fucking popular that it single-handedly pushed Exhibit into being the prime contender to take over the X-Files. Which we will briefly touch on later. Yes, but, and I don't want to get too much into it because we definitely talk about that. But yeah, I am like Chris Carter. Just think about it. Just think about it. Chris Carter looked at this and was like, yes, always use the clean hoe. That guy is my new Scully. This was the episode that he saw. And he was like, get me this man on the phone right now. Like, what the actual fuck, man? Yeah. I mean, and and yeah, like I was no uh, slouch when it came to like knowing like rappers and hip hop artists when I was a kid. And I I never heard of Exhibit before. And and I'm not saying I was like a fucking, like I'm sure plenty of people heard of Exhibit's music prior to Pimp My Ride. I'm not saying that I'm like the foremost expert on rap and hip hop. But with the relatively f- deep knowledge of it that I had, I never heard of this guy before this show. And then single-handedly, this show just made him like a household name. Crazy, crazy. But yeah, he's he's inspecting this truck. Um, he's really going in on this hoe joke where there's a bunch of hoes in the back of the truck. And he's uh, obviously alluding to the slang term for a woman of the night. And uh, it, it the, the joke is doesn't hold up very well. Exhibit would then drive the car to West Coast Customs or Galpin Autosports in later seasons where a team of guys with names like Mad Mike, Touche, and Ish, in complete contrast to Exhibit's off-the-cuff goofy demeanor in the previous scenes, would sit down and proceed to have the most scripted discussions you have ever heard in your life. In these meetings, the team would pitch ideas for what would be done to the vehicle based on the contestants' personalities, hobbies, or career path, and never failed to leave you questioning why anyone would want so many TVs in a car. Nonetheless, the crew was still lovable, and while the pimping montage that followed always strategically glossed over major portions of the process, it highlighted enough genuine craftsmanship and problem solving to be captivating. We're going to look at that same episode, and we're going to skip to the part where they're kind of telling us what we're, what they're going to what they're going to do to the car. And hopefully, there's like less weirdly dated misogynistic jokes in it. it it's like 2004. I kind of doubt that. I kind of feel like they're going to be like. Guess what, guys? I feel like we're going to install a, you know, a 32-inch flat-screen plasma TV in here. And also, uh, women aren't people, am I right? They just say that. <laughs> well, we'll see. You could be right. Guys, we got a 20-year-old girl named Heather. She drives a 1986 Chevy C10 pickup. She loves the beach, and she dreams of becoming a dolphin trainer one day. Big Dane. Tell me, how are you going to get this started? You're right. Most of the women I know change outfits several times a day. So we're going to give Heather you were, the same you were right. for her truck. Interchangeable grills. All in the front here, dog. 
I'm talking about interchangeable grills right here, Ryan. One for the daytime, one for the nighttime, and of course, West Coast time, dog. Buck, the paint on this truck is horrible. What can we do to fix it? Since Heather wants to train dolphins one day, I'm gonna make her feel like she's already in the ocean. With a smooth aquamarine paint job. Ish, this is one of the worst interiors I've ever seen. What's your plan? Ryan, this grill's too many short. No, my, a little bit taller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. So I'm gonna put an airbag under the seat. So she's gonna go like a racket. She's gonna have too many visibilities. Like this. Alex, these brakes are killing my ears. How are you gonna make them better? Ryan, these are some of the worst brakes I've ever heard. So I'm gonna put a stop to that with the top of the line big brake kit. Just like on my car? Just like on all your cars, Ryan. Matt Mike, I know you wanna load the back of this truck up. But how are you going to make it happen? No more hauling holes and other garden tools for Heather. I'm going to fill the bed of this truck with LCDs. How's she going to watch them? Don't worry about it. I got this one. I'm going to make the whole bed of the truck tilt up like this on a custom lift system. So she's going to be able to watch TV in the bed. You mean in the truck bed? Yeah, in the bed. Guys, we got a lot of amazing ideas here. But we got a long way till we get there. So let's get to work. So... So uh, this sort of sets the stage for the typical uh, Pimp My Ride episode. Um, I especially thought that the moment where he was like, she has some of the worst breaks I've ever heard. So what I'm going to do is, and then it's like anything short of just saying, fix the breaks is just too, you're doing too much. Um, but that's the typical Pimp My Ride episode. They would sort of uh, look at the this list of things about the person, their job, what, you know, what they're interested in, personality quirks. And then they would plan out these series of customizations, which ranged from relatively normal and like or something that's cool to just completely impractical things that not only are unnecessary, but also maybe make the experience of driving the car actively worse. Um, And it was certainly uh, made for some good entertainment. But as we'll learn, um, it caused a lot of issues behind the scenes. Finally, the contestant would be brought in for the big reveal. After another over-the-top reaction, Mad Mike would take the contestant on a pun-filled tour of the car while Exhibit visibly cringed at the camera. Exhibit would then gift the contestant a clear product placement related to the theme of their car and finally proclaimed that they had officially been pimped. The contestant would then show the car to their friends and family, who would always say something along the lines of how the car was so embarrassing to be seen in before, but it's cool now that it's covered in neon green flames. Lastly, the contestant would thank MTV for pimping their ride, and the credits would roll alongside a few bloopers. West Coast Customs brought your truck in from the field, and now they did some gardening of their own. So, you're gonna love what they grew when you check out your brand new Trizza. Check it out. Oh my god. Yeah, that's that's definitely her, her genuine reaction. Yeah. Also as a side note, I just have to say that like watching this um with Exhibit, who is, you know, he's a cool guy, um, unironically saying the word Trizuk has it just goes to show how thoroughly pop culture co-opt terminology and trends and slang to the point where they ground them into the dust and make them just complete caricatures and jokes of themselves. Because with my 2023 ears, uh, exhibit saying Trizuk is ridiculous and just completely absurd and almost to the point where like, I, I don't think I've heard anybody say, use that form of like Trizuk. What, 
adding is to the middle of things. I don't think I've ever, I've heard anybody saying that that wasn't supposed to be like a satirical tone in like a decade. Yeah, like th- think about the last time somebody genuinely said for shizzle. Yeah, but at the time it was like a genuinely cool thing to say. I look forward to watching things from now in 10 years and having that same reaction to people saying, <coughs> I look just forward to- sneezing. <laughs> That's, that's all the rage on TikTok now. People just uploading their sneezing videos. I look forward to watching videos in 10 years of people now saying things like that shit's so fire and just cringing. <laughs> but also, yeah, and we'll get we'll touch on this later. But yeah, that's that reaction is not genuine. There's no I mean, there's just short of like learning that your brother who you thought died in the war is actually alive and he shows up in your doorstep. That's nobody's ever had a reaction like that to anything. It's all there. <laughs> this like metal breakdown. Rock on, Heather. They're they're not in the same shot. Like their reactions are just complete. They're they're not in the same environment with that truck. They, they definitely aren't. And she's literally reacting like somebody just like showed her the cure for cancer. Say. The car rolled in here, it had four different wheels from, look like four different cars. We hooked you up with 22 inch Asante three piece rims. Asante. Yeah. <laughs> they're wrapped in high performance needle tires. Oh, they're so big, I love them. Do you like it big? Yeah, love them big. Oh, cool. Heather, when we got your truck. 2004, ladies and gentlemen. 2004, man. Put you a brand new Phantom grill in it, and check this out. It's even got Yeah, I mean, it's like, like what? What do you? What do you think about this? This pimped ride? It looks terrible, bro. It looks terrible. <laughs> None of this is for function. Like, it's all aesthetics, you know. We'll just really quickly watch the thing they alluded to earlier. The the bed of the truck that lifts up to reveal all these LCD screens that you have to like turn around and watch. Man, Mizzle, would you do us the honors? <laughs> she just, her reaction is like, she just saw a miracle. You ain't never seen that. It's just like the truck, the bed of the truck lifts up vertically and then it's just got a bunch of TVs in it and you have to like sit behind the truck in like a chair or something like that. And then you just watch a bunch of different TVs. Like even if this was a cool idea, like, oh yeah, like you could be at a tailgating party and like watch a movie or something like that. But like, why would you need like seven different little tiny TVs? And also- They had to gut this truck. They had to fucking take the entire truck bed and cut it out of the truck so that they could Optimus Prime in a bed that at the push of a button would transform into a wall of like seven inch LCD TVs. It's like, wait, it's just, it's pointless and wasteful and gaudy and, and just so stupid on like every front. And yet I watched every episode of this show for like four seasons. Why? I don't know. I was like, I fucking love Pimp My Ride. Look at these crazy cars. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and... Bro, culture hit different in 2004. Oh, it definitely did, 100%. Yeah, I like, thinking back on it now, and I guess maybe it's in the world of streaming and endless choices, like, why wouldn't you only inundate yourself with just the most niche ends of your own tastes? 
Like, why would I ever watch an episode of Pimp My Ride instead of, like, some fucking obscure horror movie from the 80s that I want to watch or something like that? But uh, at the when I was like when I was like a teenager and a little bit older, I was like I was all over MTV. I was I was watching fucking Pimp My Ride. I was watching Room Raiders. I was watching I Love the Eighties on on VH1. I I was like all over this shit. I don't even know why, but I I was watching every episode of Pimp My Ride, and I was loving every second of it. Bro, I had no interest in cars. I had no interest in like weird paint jobs. I had no interest in like obviously forced staged rehearsed reactions and yet i was there bro i was all in we were there together we were we were we were we were sitting under the same moon dude i was an exciple i was an exciple like an exhibit a, you know apostle like i was there i was in i couldn't tell you why but i was there I, yeah i was i and what it what it I mean obviously it's like lack you know less content you know you're kind of dictated by the programming of channels or whatever but what what else was going on what else was in the water that had me sitting down watching pimp my ride I think there's I think that there's part of it too that's just like flashy editing with a fisheye lens and a guy making like jokes you know it like it feels it's a weird aesthetic because it feels like it's shot like a skate video but it's about customizing cars hosted by a rapper. So it's this like three different ends of the cultural spectrum all colliding into a bizarre kaleidoscope of problematic and weird bullshit. Yeah. And you like really wanted to see the end result, even though like now I don't really I can't conjure the enthusiasm for wanting to find out the result of a of a crazy custom car customization. But back then, you were just like, I got to see this shit. I got to see what they cook up. I got to see what West Coast Customs is cooking up tonight. <laughs> yeah, uh, culture hit different. You, That's uh, the only way. Only, it's the best way to describe it. It's kind of interesting how every now and then these bloopers would almost show the crew poking fun at the ridiculousness of the modifications. For example, there's a blooper where Q is trying to make a shot on the pool table they put in the bed of the truck, but he couldn't get the right angle because the pool table was sunken into the bed a bit. And so he says something like, damn, we should have made this flush. Makeover shows tend to draw in large audiences regardless of what they choose to focus on. There is something deeply satisfying about seeing things be improved or given a second chance at life. And there is a particularly addicting quality to the dopamine hit of reaching the before and after section of a YouTube restoration video. Yet Pimp My Ride was a bit different. To most people, the end product was not necessarily an improvement, yet not objectively worse than the car's original state either. Instead, the cars became something different altogether. The appeal of Pimp My Ride was its particular brand of baffling ridiculousness. In all fairness, sometimes the modifications were genuinely creative and useful things that fit the contestants' personalities, like a motorized surfboard rack that made it easier for the owner to put his hoverboard on the roof of his VW bus. But other times, they did things like putting a fake MRI machine full of TVs in the back of a contestant's wagon just because she worked in healthcare. We're just gonna watch a little montage of some of the most ridiculous uh, pimp my ride modifications. Three. When we first got your car, it was all jacked up, old family trucks style. <laughs> yeah. We hooked it up with this one of a kind hood with Caduceus on it, and check this out. We hooked you up with these graphics. What are these? It's a heart rate and EKG rhythm. Is this a healthy heartbeat? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> we know you want to be a traveling nurse. So we hooked you up with something special. Check this out. 
God, what is this? Your own mobile half-scan machine. <laughs> Equipped with four 12-inch JL Audio woofers and exonic monitors. But that's not it. Check out what it does. So now, you and your homies can lay on the bed and y'all can scan each other. All right. Nice. And next time you're on... Okay, so first of all, uh, I believe that Mad Mike must have misspoken because um, CAT scans hit you with a harmful amount of radiation that would not be safe to just put into somebody's car for them to use unregulated. Um, the, the CAT scans are, are famously something that you should try to have as minimal amount of them in your lifetime as possible. Um, so if it was a real thing, it may have been an MRI machine because those don't really have like harmful rays that they're hitting you with. But that being said, it probably wasn't anything. It probably was just fake. But what a bizarre thing. Like you're a nurse. So we're going to put an MRI machine in your car so that you and your friends can scan each other. An MRI machine. With five different TV screens. So that you just like can take an MRI and then just be watching TV at the same time, I guess. It's fucking so surreal. This was like the original Theranos. Mad Mike was like, if we had MRI machines in our cars, we would be able to scan ourselves more frequently and we can catch illnesses faster and we don't have to go into the doctor anymore. We can just scan ourselves at home and we'll always know when there's an issue going on. What a, what a bizarre thing. And it's like... like like, imagine being that person who's just, like, simultaneously psyched that their car is getting a customization and they're fixing it and getting to be on this TV show and kind of have this little fun moment where they get to go around and hang out with Exhibit and film these scenes and all this stuff. But then simultaneously looking at this car and being like, oh, this is cool that they're doing this conceptually. But then also thinking, like, what the hell? Like, what am I going to do with this? You've rendered 80% of the space in my car completely useless. What the hell? I can't, nobody can sit back here we, while we're driving. It's a, it's a two-seater with just this thing in the back that I'll never use. And also the idea that there's like an EKG heart monitor on the side of the car is such a ridiculous. As if she just loves heartbeats because she's a nurse. She loves heartbeats. It's insane. <laughs> it's just like it's just insane. That's like that's like somebody being like, oh, because you draw comics, you must love lead pencil lead. And then they just make you a car that just has it's just made of pencil lead. You know, the steering wheel column, we've fashioned it out of 6B lead. Don't you love this? And you're just like, well, technically, they stopped making pencils with lead in the 70s. They use graphite now. And the reason why they did that is because lead is very harmful to, it's toxic. You've just made my car a stuffed death trap. <laughs> The idea of a show like this having the cultural impact that it did may still be baffling to some, but a few key factors were at play which could explain why it became so popular. On one hand, it was an easy show for the entire family to watch casually and laugh at the absurdity of it all. On the other hand, Pimp My Ride was genuinely able to capture the attention of the youth, and it did so by leaning into two of the biggest subcultures of the era, bringing with it multiple styles of modified cars, 
and the largely Japanese-inspired street racer era of car culture, which had been bubbling up across America throughout the entire 90s and was in full swing by the start of the show. Thus, despite its absurdity, or in addition to its absurdity, the show managed to be a culmination of era-defining aesthetics and in many ways has kept its relevance in our cultural consciousness by becoming a sort of time capsule anyone could point to in an effort to describe how ridiculous the aesthetics of the early 2000s were. In order to comprehend the car culture of post-Y2K America, we need to examine a few of the numerous car cultures that merged together to form the aesthetic featured on Pimp My Ride. The show, of course, gets its name from the term Pimpmobile, a style of car driven by drug dealers, gang leaders, and of course pimps, at least according to the black exploitation films of the 1970s. Specifically, the Cadillac Eldorado featured in the 1971 film Superfly, which is largely considered to be responsible for starting the Pimpmobile movement. These were large American luxury cars which were redone with gaudy chrome trim, candy paint jobs, upgraded sound systems, and custom interiors usually upholstered in velvet or shag carpet. So uh, what, what are we looking at here, Dave? We got a picture of this of this car. I, I mean, we've we've obviously shared many conversations about uh, 1970s black exploitation films. So I'm, I'm I'm assuming you're familiar with uh, Superfly and this car. Love love Superfly. Big uh, black exploitation fan. Um, the Eldorado uh, is uh, you know something synonymous with those films and the films of that era. Um, and uh, you know that's also the whitest fucking thing I can say. I fucking love black exploitation films. Richard Roundtree is a legend. Shaft is a great film. I love Superfly. I love uh, Fred the Hammer Williamson. Um, I love, uh, coffee. I love, you know, all, all of these movies from this time period, um, Black Caesar, uh, you know, uh, Larry Cohen's Black Caesar. Um, the, I think there's such a great kind of aesthetic and also problematic elements to all these films, obviously, but, uh, also I, I, <laughs> I'm such a sucker for big swings and, uh, the term problematic fave applies to a lot of things that I like. <laughs> Are you, are you a fan of Black Coffee, the infamous Easter egg from Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, where you could go into this house and then just play an interactive mini game where you just like had sex with a lady in the bedroom and it became the it became a large source of criticism for the game and a lot of like mothers against, you know, video games groups pointing to it as an example of how video games were corrupting the youth. I've literally never played that game before. So that that answers the question for that one. It was a it was a it was a parody of coffee and it was a sex mini game where you could go into a room and have sex with a digital avatar version of Pam Greer. All I can say is I love Pam Greer. Um but yeah, these are two images of uh, El Dorado, uh Cadillac El Dorado and uh you know the the shapes of uh Cadillac cars from this time period are very cool, you know sleek bold striking um large engine block uh areas you know large hood large protracted hood areas um uh yeah i i like the way they look um but also i am not a fucking car person so like you know this is not my my area of expertise as they say well jokes on you dave because this isn't even a car is it a transformer yeah, I, I don't know where that joke was going. Oh, okay. Um, honestly, a Cadillac Eldorado that turns into like a jive talking black exploitation character sounds like something that would be in a Michael Bay Transformers movie. I mean, it basically is in Transformers 2, I think. Yeah, but they're not they're not Cadillacs, though. They're like little like 
not VW Bugs or whatever. They're like small cars, you know? That movie is so racist, bro. That movie is so- I remember being in the theater watching that movie and just like looking around at everyone like, am I the only one seeing this? Like, that robot with gold teeth just said he doesn't know how to read. Michael Bay, the writer's strike is happening. Nobody's around to rewrite this. Oh, I'll have to do it myself. And this is what happens. He just defaults to racial stereotypes. Dude, fucking brutal, man. Brutal. And also, I similar to what you said, I just have to acknowledge that, like, me going through and reading that last little segment about black exploitation cars and pit pitmobiles in a like narrative podcast format is also just like the whitest thing I possibly have ever done. The history of pitmobiles. <laughs> uh, welcome to our nine-part series on the Hammer. Fred Williamson will uh, his his sexual assault allegations will be addressed at some point in this episode, but first, we must evaluate the man for his work. Black Caesar, where it all started. In later decades, the aesthetics of these pentmobiles were kept alive by, quote, slab car culture of Houston, Texas, which had been growing in popularity throughout the 90s and was exported to the rest of the U.S. through the growing Houston hip-hop scene. These cars focused on the same enormous American luxury cars used to make pentmobiles, but with a greater emphasis on the sound systems with entire trunks full of speakers. Further, the gaudy accessories fitted to the cars took a turn towards the impractical with neon signs fitted on the underside of the trunk lid and large chrome, quote, elbows protruding from the wheels like an ancient chariot. So these, these are one of these slab cars. You want to describe this? This is the craziest fucking thing I've ever seen. It's a cherry red car with like like if you if if you saw this in a fucking um roger corman movie you know like uh the fuck is the name of that movie with frankenstein the hell sylvester stallone is the tommy gun wielding character what the hell did where they run people over death race 2000 uh if you saw this in death race 2000 you'd be like mm, i don't know man you might want to dial that back and the fact that this is real is just it's crazy yeah it just it, in it yeah it look it looks like a it looks like a, some like tricked out jalopy from like Mad Max or something like that. Yeah, it's like a it's like a red. Um, I don't even know what the, it might be like a Chrysler or something like that. Um, and it's like all red from head to toe. The trunk is up and it's got a bunch of speakers in the trunk. And then there's a neon sign on the lid of the trunk that says, I got the juice now. And then the, uh, the wheels, all four wheels, as well as the spare tire on the back have these just like cone shaped metal protrusions going off of the, off of them, like I don't even know, like a couple feet. Yeah, it, just, it looks like a weird post-apocalyptic jalopy. Similarly, 1990s West Coast gangster rap thrust lowriders into the forefront of culture. However, the roots of lowrider culture runs much deeper, with origins in the Chicano communities in Southern California dating all the way back to the post-war era. At that time, lowriders emerged as a countercultural movement which preferred cruising low and slow rather than racing between streetlights like the hot rods popular with the youth of white America. Despite being an objectively safer presence on the roads, lowriders faced constant harassment by the public and the police, ultimately culminating in a statewide ban of lowered cars in 1959. 
Rather than suppressing the scene, this law inadvertently led to the creation of the subculture's most defining feature, hydraulic suspension, which could raise the car with a flip of a switch at the first sight of a police cruiser. Lowrider culture primarily appears in Pimp My Ride through the use of chrome wire wheels and intricate multi-layered candy paint jobs. So let's just talk about this for a second. I know this is not what this episode's about, but I found this super fascinating. I mean, first of all, um, I, I didn't know I didn't know about the cultural history of lowrider cars. I mean, I knew that it was it was uh, the origins of it were in like Chicano culture, and I know it's like still very strongly part of that culture. Um, but I didn't know the actual literal history of it. And number one, that's fucked up that they were just like, yeah, we're not like those dudes who are just like r- dangerously racing on the streets, putting people's lives in danger. Like we just want to like have crazy low cars and just drive really slowly in a very safe manner that's not dangerous to anybody. And the police were just like, fuck you though, specifically. And then they like banned them for reasons that don't even make any logical sense because they were like not posing an issue to anybody. Um, But that being said, that as fucked up as that is, I love that. And I did not know that, that the, the purpose of the hydraulic lifting was so that they could just like, they're driving down the street and then they see a car, a cop car coming in. They're like, oh shit, quick, press the button. And then they press it and then they're just, nothing to see here, officer. Just a normal car that's the right suspension. All right, keeping an eye on you. All right, back to work. Like that's the coolest. That's the most over-engineered running from the cops I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The uh, the spending a ton of fucking money to hide in plain sight. That's the that's one of the that's one of the best things I've ever heard. That's I love that fact so much. The same massive American sedans which were being used to make pitmobiles, slabs, and lowriders are exactly what caused smaller, fuel-efficient Japanese cars to get a foothold in America after the gas crisis of 1973, contributing to the economic boom Japan experienced in the 80s. This economic boom in turn led to a massive boom in Japan's car scene. A relatively large portion of Japanese young adults were able to afford new sports cars, and Japanese car companies sought to provide them with as many options as possible. The trend was so widespread that companies sprang up left and right to provide this new wave of enthusiasts with performance parts and upgrades to their new cars. This birthed the Japanese tuning scene, which slowly but surely leaked into American culture through magazines, manga, and anime such as Initial D, which focused on teenage street racers. So this is a a cover of a, a Japanese illegal street racing magazine. Yeah, it's called Option, and the cover image is you're like sitting in the back seat of this car looking over someone's shoulder as they're gripping the wheel and um, uh, we're kind of like seeing uh, light uh, distortions, like a long exposure neon, like zip by the car. Um, And uh, yeah, it's from 1981. This is issue six of the zine option, option. While cars modified for racing are not always flashy, an inclination towards absurdity was already built into Japanese car culture due to the infamous Bosozoku subculture which emerged in the late 1940s. The Bosozoku, which translates to violent running tribe, were originally gangs of motorcyclists allegedly made up of young men who were trained to be kamikaze pilots who had then trouble readjusting to civilian life after the war ended. Instead of forcing their own assimilation, they chose to craft the most absurd, obnoxious motorcycles they could dream up and took to the city streets 
streets of Japan, causing as much of a ruckus as possible. Though the gangs could be genuinely destructive at times and were considered to be a stepping stone towards joining the Yakuza, the aesthetic style they created spread to every other automotive subculture in Japan by the 1980s. Um, so we're, uh, we have a couple pictures here of some early Bosazoku motorcycles, and then also once Bosazoku like bled into car culture, we also have some cars here. Do you want to describe these these Bososoku uh, motorcycles and cars? I love the idea that this subculture is an outgrowth of like life has no meaning because you've been told and trained that you're going to sacrifice your life for the emperor and the good of society and like that you are just a meaningless cog in a machine and your life has no greater grand purpose you know like i don't think that would work with american culture as much because americans are so just like you're special you're a genius everyone has a skill everyone is born talented they just have to figure it out um where obviously japanese culture is uh, very different in some ways that are very positive and some that are maybe not as positive one of them being that the business culture there is very repressive and this idea that you know you need to fit inside of a pre-established kind of cog in a machine aspect is a stereotypical thing that people experience there right not everybody does but you know it's a thing in the culture and i love the idea that vets coming back from the war where they've been literally expecting to just commit suicide are like well what do i do now yeah, especially because it's it's not just that they, you know, they didn't just like get like the bravest, most depressed people to be kamikaze pilots. Like they they took soldiers and like psychologically stripped them down and rebuilt them from the ground up to be fully committed to the idea of sacrificing themselves for their country. So it's not just like, oh, war's over. I survived. I didn't have to kill myself. Now you're just like, I've been retuned to be a super soldier whose only goal in life is to sacrifice myself for my country. What I have no purpose anymore. And then you kind of like loop yourself and come back the other side where you're like, well, I am alive. So I'm going to be a hyper, 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 hyper individualistic expression of what it means to be alive by writing this death trap machine that's going to be covered with swooping angles and spikes and wires and giant absurdist add-ons that are going to be a direct reflection of my individual persona writ large and made in metal like that's fascinating fascinating yeah yeah these are these these almost these look like car body horror yeah i was i would say it, it looks like a mashup between Tetsuo the Iron Man and like the way that Akira Toriyama draws vehicles where they're like cute, they're cute, they're weird, they're functional, but they also have like chibi elements to the anatomy. But then it's kind of got the Shinya Tsukamoto, scary, aggressive, tons of wires. Like we're, one of the images here is uh, a young man sitting on a motorcycle wearing jeans and a black jacket. And the motorcycle has just like massive architectural shapes that are like swoops all over it going in every direction. And he's wearing a helmet that has a that has giant wings on it, almost like Hermes. But the wings go back like a foot in the air. They're not just like standard kind of, you know, six inches or 10 inches. I got a Captain America f uh, motorcycle helmet. Isn't that isn't that neat? Yeah, no, this thing is like a fucking statement. Um, yeah, I'm so I'm so into this. And then the the cars are you know standard Japanese body, standard Japanese car bodies, but that have been augmented and like have giant ex uh like uh what the hell are they called uh exhaust ports sticking out of the 
uh, hood of the car that extend into the air, like literally six feet into the air. And they have, instead of just a bumper, they have double bumpers, the bottom of which is, the bottom one of which is like almost a shelf. It's like a giant, like three foot shelf that extends out from the bottom. It They look extremely unique in a way that is appealing to me. Would I ever want to drive one? No. While the Bososoku style was seen as a form of rebellion against the strict social norms of Japanese society, particularly among the youth who felt stifled by traditional values, the style has inspired car enthusiasts around the world to push the boundaries of what is possible when expressing oneself through their cars. Lastly, the final piece of this puzzle was of course the original Fast and the Furious, a weird, almost alternate reality caricature of tuner culture. It was a car movie made by non-car people, imagining what car people wanted to see. It was absurd and famously nonsensical, but there wasn't much else for this growing subculture to latch onto at the time. For years, kids had been buying Japanese car magazines off eBay just to look at the pictures, including various Japan-only cars that kids had only seen in magazines and video games like Gran Turismo. Thus, the film was largely embraced, at least by the youth, and the caricature of street racing aesthetics presented in the movie created a feedback loop where teens began to style their own cars like the ones in the movies. But more importantly, The Fast and the Furious showed the world that this particular brand of absurd car modification was extremely marketable. Two, trouble Under the Hood At some point in the early 2000s, Exhibit happened to be hanging out at West Coast Customs, who were building his car at the time, where a producer from MTV came in to pitch a show to the owners of the shop. Exhibit, being his characteristically goofy self, claims to have been cracking jokes the whole time until the producer turned to him and asked if he would ever want to host a show. Exhibit was unsure about the idea, but agreed to do a 10-minute test shoot, which MTV immediately picked up for 13 episodes. Do you believe that? origin story or do you think that's that's part of the kayfabe yeah i think it's kayfabe i don't believe that at all because that's like a great that's a great origin story he's just like hanging out and then like the mtv producers are coming in pitching and he's just like he's sitting in a corner it's like it like sets him up as being like the coolest guy on the fucking block where he's just like cracking jokes and be like oh and then they're like you know do you have you ever thought about being in the pictures and he's like i don't know about that maybe like it's like the it's the most like making you look like they're the coolest person possible origin story well regardless it's a great it's a great kayfabe that's all I, that's all i know the first episode of print my ride premiered on a thursday at 10 30 p.m eastern standard time however the show was such a hit that within two months of premiering it was moved to Sunday nights at 9 p.m. during MTV's most popular programming block, Sunday Stew. Despite its widespread popularity and immediate financial success, Pimp My Ride had its share of issues bubbling up behind the scenes. The first shakeup happened in season three, which was half as long as the other seasons, due to West Coast Customs terminating their partnership with MTV. The shop felt that the show was harming their credibility as they were already an established shop in the car scene, having worked on cars for major celebrities like Shaq before the show was ever pitched. The shop's co-founder, Ryan Friedlinghaus, felt the show was taking too much time away from their projects for actual customers, and they probably didn't like being known as the shop that puts ridiculous things into cars. Years later, they ended up doing a new show for Discovery called Inside West Coast Customs. This show focused more on the inner workings of the shop and framed it in a more professional light. Which honestly, like, I think that's totally legit. Like, I, in most other circumstances, I'd just be like, no, like, I feel like you got too big for your britches. Like, this show was giving you a lot of exposure. You got, you know, you got too high and mighty on yourself and you thought that you were, you know, were bigger without it or whatever. But in this case, they, I think they have a point. 
this show does not make them look good. It does not paint them in a good light. It just, it like, the show is massively popular and people love it, but the actual customization part of it is and always was, like, ridiculous. And also, they they come across as, like, the clowns who took over the circus, you know? And, and like, the, you, you are entertained by the show, but you never walk away from it thinking, I want that done to my car. It's almost more of a, like, I'm, like, look at these fucking idiots getting this weird shit done to their car. Glad I have a normal car, and I'm not so poor that I can't afford to have it, so I have to have some weird thing, like, come in and redo my car for me. It's, like, almost like a looking down, like, you know, uh, group mockery type situation. Electronic specialist Mad Mike was brought over from West Coast Customs, presumably because they figured the show would be too different without him putting TVs and mud flaps and leading the grand reveal tours at the climax of each episode. Surprisingly, this change didn't affect the show's popularity much at all. In fact, the show didn't end because of lower ratings or a lack of viewership, but simply because Exhibit's contract with MTV ended. Exhibit, like West Coast Customs, was already famous before the show was ever pitched. He had even already appeared in two movies and two video games and had stated publicly that he joined the show simply because he thought it would be good exposure to have his songs and music videos featured in every episode, but began to feel that the show was actively harming his career by becoming bigger than his music. He further stated that by the end of its run, he felt as if the show was elevated everyone's careers besides his own. He wanted to have time to go on tours and audition for movie roles again. And once again, I feel like he kind of has a point. I'd never heard of Exhibit before Pimp My Ride. And then when Pimp My Ride came out, he was a he became a household name, but never as like, oh, Exhibit, the guy who was on Pimp My Ride. And then he like blew up as a rapper. It was always just he was the guy on Pimp My Ride. In fact, it almost because I didn't really know about him before that, and because he became so ubiquitously anonymous, uh, synonymous with Pimp My Ride, it almost, you in your mind, you're thinking like, oh, he was like a washed up rapper who then, uh, you know, dovetailed into becoming the host of this show. That, that I think he's got a point that like, he became so famous for Pimp My Ride, and he talked about it in an interview saying like, he knew, he knew that this thing, like when he did the show, all he wanted to do was just, he, he had a deal where basically he was like, all right, I'll be the host of the show, but all of the songs in the show have to be my songs. And then you need to like play clips from my music videos as like transitionary material between scenes and stuff like that. And so his whole game was he wanted to get exposure for his music career through the show. But what and he that's what he thought it was going to be. And then he realized that it had taken on a life of its own and become this bigger thing when he started getting recognized and approached on the streets by like soccer moms who just like never lift, listen to rap music in their entire lives. But we're just like taking pictures with him and being like, oh, can you look at my car and roast it or whatever? And he was like, oh, no, this is not actually doing anything for my career. It's just creating a different career for me as this famous host guy. And and because my my career is being so like pulled in that direction, like magnetically pulled in the direction of being famous for being the host to pimp my ride, it's actively harming my music career because nobody gives a shit about that. And nobody thinks about me in that way. In a 2018 interview with The Breakfast Club, Exhibit discusses the final blows which drove him away from the show, stating that someone from MTV once told him that, quote, any guy with braids could replace him, a sentiment which they attempted to act upon when Exhibit eventually refused to compromise any further. Exhibit explained that the episode guest hosted by Chameleonaire was actually the last episode ever filmed despite airing in the middle of the final season. This is because the episode was a last-minute promotional time 
tie-in for the upcoming Silver Surfer movie. Exhibit explains that he had already finished filming for the season, went off to shoot for the X-Files movie, and stopped by MTV one last time before leaving for his first tour since before the show started. While in the MTV building, executives from the promotional company stopped Exhibit to thank him for coming back to film the Silver Surfer episode, leaving him baffled as he was set to leave town within a few days. When MTV finally called Exhibit apologizing for neglecting to keep him informed, they simply stated that they would fly him out from wherever he was at the time to fit the shoots in. Exhibit, claiming he had just seen how much MTV was getting paid for the promotional episode when he visited the offices, stood his ground and said he would only agree to these arrangements for $1 million. MTV refused the proposition and hired Chameleon Air instead. I really wanted to like hammer in on the abs on this absurdity of the fact that they did this show for, uh, what was it, 2004 to four or five. Yeah. Four, they did the show for four seasons. It was massively popular. Uh, Exhibit was a household name. This was like printing money for them. And they just failed to tell him that they needed to film an episode that was like this tie-in for a bunch of money, this promotional thing for this for this movie. And whenever he they told him at the last minute and he was like, I can't do that. I'm going on tour. If you, if you want me to do that, you're gonna have to pay me some like real money to like, you know, cancel some tour dates and fly back and all this shit. And they were just like this massively popular show, household name host. They were just like, eh, fuck that. We'll just hire a different rapper to be in this one episode. And it's just like, it's like alternate reality pit my ride where there's just a, there's one episode where it's just a different guy and they don't acknowledge it. They don't go like, hey, we got a special host here, exhibits out fucking pimping alien spaceships or like make up some weird joke excuse. It's he's just there instead. It's like the it's like the season four premiere of uh Buffy where she just has a sister and and for the whole episode they just play it as if she had always been there. And then at the end they reveal that she had been retconned into the show. It, it was like it's like that. Yeah like wouldn't it be amazing if they just like made a new X Files show and they just swapped in somebody else it's like you know instead of instead of writing that whole last season or you know it's not the last season but that season is it season seven where Mulder David Duchovny didn't want to come back so they introduced Doggett and uh they pivot Scully to be the believer and Doggett is the non-believer and you're cutting back and forth between you know them looking for Mulder who's being tortured in an like an alien facility facility somewhere wouldn't it be great if they just like kept making the show and they were like, oh, this is Doggett. He's always been the main character. Moving on. Like, I would have loved that. I would have loved if they were just like, fuck it. Here we go. I mean, I feel if anything, I feel like that we've we're moving further away from stuff like that, because back, you know, not too long ago, people were pretty OK with just recasting somebody like even as even as recently as like uh, Iron Man, where Terrence Howard was was Rhodey and then they just replaced him with Don Cheadle and just they didn't explain it. Yeah. And, and Ed Norton is the Hulk. He and that, that the Incredible Hulk. It takes place in the MCU universe and they just recast him. But now, like they like they'll like refuse to do that. Like they won't like they'll like change the story and explain how the person died in universe, and then have them replaced by a different character canonically before they'll just recast somebody. Like the, like they just won't do it anymore. But the, but my favorite example of that, which the actual execution of it is dog shit. But and spoilers alert, I guess. But. In the in in season five of Sliders, um, Jerry O'Connell leaves the show. I guess to go and be in movies, uh, go be in fucking Kangaroo Jack or some shit. 
And so they explain it away by basically they jump into a, into a, a portal and in the middle of the of the slide, um, Quinn Mallory, who the character that that uh, Jerry O'Connell plays, he a different alternate dimension version of Quinn Mallory is also sliding and then they collide and his spirit or his like soul or whatever goes into a different body of an alternate dimension uh, Quinn Mallory. And so it's him, but it's he's a different he looks different because he's from a different dimension. And so they just recast him with a different actor, but it's still the same character. But they did this weird convoluted body switching thing to justify that it's a different guy. Despite Jerry O'Connell's actual real life brother being on the show for the past season and a half. And the fact that I think he has a third brother that also looks very much like him. Um, yeah, it is very weird. And as funny as that is to me, the fifth season of Sliders is almost unwatchable. It's terrible. Though Chameleonaire held his own as a charismatic host, the series simply fell apart. After the incident with the exhibit, he never negotiated a new contract with MTV and all the spinoffs of the show faded into obscurity. So Dave, what are you thinking about the 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 ballad of of uh of, of Pimp My Ride and our our hero protagonist exhibit? Yeah, I'm bracing. I'm bracing for the shit to hit the fan. I'm bracing for it all to come tumbling down even more so than it already has with them just being like we refuse to pay you exhibit, which is so crazy. They should have just fucking paid this guy. Like what the fuck? Yeah, well, uh, as we'll kind of touch on a little bit in the last act of the show, um one of the big things that MTV promised exhibit was that he would make a lot of money on the back end from merchandising. Um and speaking of merchandising, is there anything you want to plug today? <laughs> Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, my book, Mary Tyler Moorhawk, which is being published by uh, Top Shelf Comics, is available for pre-order right now. If you want to support local bookstores, you can do so by going to uh, Golden Apple Comics. They have a exclusive book plate there that's going to be signed by me. Uh, you can just go there, go to their website, Golden Apple. I think it's goldenapplecomics.com. Um, or if you uh, need the ease and access of Amazon, you can go there and just type in Mary Tyler Moorhawk, all one word, and find it. It's pre-orderable there. It'll ship February 13th, 2024. Yeah, it should be easy to search for. There's no way you're going to have to go to the disambiguation page for Mary Tyler Moorhawk. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, uh, and then also if anybody wants to pre-order my, Star uh, my uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comic, it's also available pre-order. Endless Summer Number One, TMNT. Endless Summer Number One. I wrote it. It's gonna be cool. Spandrew, what about you? Got anything you want to promote? You got where, where can people find you on the internet, man? Where 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 would someone even find you? Uh, you can find me uh appearing on an episode of Pimp My Ride because I my my jalopy was on its last legs, and so I take it in and exhibit, and his team take a look at it. And they decide to trick it out with a giant eye patch. And you can't find me on social media because I don't use social media. But here's the thing. If you want to follow the exploits of Deep Cuts podcast, Spandrew and Dave, check out all the stuff we got going on. There's a bunch of places you can go. You can go to our Facebook page, Deep Cuts Podcast, where we basically just share a bunch of crazy shit in the, in the world of obscure pop cultural ephemera. We're, we're sharing crazy movie posters from obscure horror movies from the 80s 
collages of cool screenshots from movies you've never seen, um, videos where we're talking about and reacting to movie clips from stuff that you've never seen but should check out. Um, it's a fun time. Um, you can also check out our new Facebook page. It's called Monster Club, and it's basically a Facebook page where we just share a bunch of cool stuff all related to movie monsters. If you want to find everything there is to know about movie monsters, you should check out Monster Club. It's a page that we've uh, started and we've ha- we've been running for a little bit. It's recently taken off and blown up and gotten like a pretty decent sized audience. And um, it's mostly run by us and friend and listener of the show, Brock McDonald. He's uh, he's he's been running that page for a little while now and he's killing it. Uh, so check it out. It's cool mu- movie monster stuff. Um, you can also join our Facebook group, Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group, where we talk about the show, make memes. There's a cool little community of about 2,000 Deep Cuts listeners there um, that kind of hang out and talk about the show. And we, we get into some, some goofy hijinks. Um, and honestly, a lot of the inside jokes and weird story elements of the show have been birthed in the Facebook group. And if you're in there and you're talking and you're hanging out, chances are you might get incorporated into the show in some way. Um, you can also join our Discord server, bit.ly.com slash Discord, where we also talk about the show and make memes and talk about other things and play games. It's just a cool little community for, for the show. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at DeepCutsPod. You can follow us on TikTok at Mystery Treehouse. Um, and uh, if you want to pay your respects to the dear beloved Papa Pricey, you can pick up his comic book, Deadbolt AI Private Eye. If you go to dapricerights.com, you can pick up a copy of the book. It's a book about a future um, dystopian world where humans and robots coexist, and Deadbolt is a um, Raymond Chandler-esque uh, hard-boiled detective solving crimes. And now let's get back to the show. Act three, smoke and mirrors, but the mirror has fuzzy dice hanging from it. In 2015, a Huffington Post article brought the show back into the limelight for less than favorable reasons. As it turns out, and as we all probably understood deep down, major aspects of the show were completely faked. Contestants' personality traits were exaggerated or fabricated. The cars were sometimes purposely damaged to make the transformation seem even more drastic. And worst of all, underlying mechanical problems were not often addressed in favor of spending time revamping only what could be seen by the camera. In the article, three former contestants and one executive producer discussed their time on the show. The first contestant interviewed, Jake Glazier, from season four, stated that the show did not exaggerate his personality too much, but that he had mentioned his grandmother would smoke in the car, and so MTV went ahead and dumped an extra few dozen cigarette butts in the car to make her just look like a total disgusting person, said Jake. Jake also mentioned that his car was missing a muffler, but rather than simply installing a new one, they installed a large exhaust tip to make it seem as if the car was supposed to sound aggressive, even though it was just the lack of a muffler. Ultimately, Jake sold the car after about a month due to the persistence of mechanical issues, and the car was bought by the audio company whose products were used in the build, simply because they did not want the equipment to fall into the hands of competitors. Seth Martino from season six had a particularly rough time with the show. Being a larger guy, MTV fabricated the personality trait that Seth's car was littered with candies to snack on while driving. Seth stated, I sat there and watched them dump out two bags of generic candy, but I didn't question anything because it was an exciting experience and I just kind of went with the flow. With this lie in place, the crew decided to install a cotton candy machine in the trunk of the car. Seth, feeling understandably insulted by the move, said, I think they just wanted to put a cotton candy in the car and use the fat guy as the opportunity to do it. Seth also mentioned that multiple TV screens never worked again after filming and that the LED lights they installed in his seats would get concerningly hot so he never used them. It's one thing, if that guy was overweight, but also he genuinely came to them and was like, I eat all kinds of candy in the car and like it's a real big problem. 
I love snacking in the car. That's one thing. Okay, they decided to put a cotton candy machine in the car as like a nod to that or whatever. This thing that he genuinely said and was like a real aspect aspect of his personality. It's still dumb and impractical and kind of insulting. But at least if he had actually come to them and said like, yeah, I'm just I'm a big guy and I love eating candy in the car. Fine. But the fact that that was completely fabricated, they were literally just like, this guy's fat. Like, let's fucking make it seem like he's like a fucking pig who's just like obsessed with candy. And we'll be like, here, fatty, like, let's put some cotton candy machine in your car. Like, that's so fucked up. That's so messed up. 2004, man, that shit was wild. Yeah, that's like, I know, I know that like it was more socially acceptable to act like that, but I can't imagine. And I think about this all the time. I don't think about this, not just this. I think about this. I think about this whenever they like write like a fat character in a movie that's supposed to be fat and like is written to be kind of like, like to be focused on that they're fat. And I can just imagining like the casting directors in the room, handing somebody those sides and being like, read this. Like, I can't imagine sitting in a room and looking someone straight in the face and being like, we came up with this idea where we put a cotton candy machine in your car because you're fat. Like, I can't, I can't imagine sitting in a room and looking at somebody and just saying that. Yeah, it, it takes the it takes the uh, the like bold face kind of reshaping of narratives to reality TV of reality TV in this time and just like dials it up to 11. Yeah, it's just like it's like, uh, come on, Sethy baby, come in here. Let's talk. Let's let's chew the fat here. Uh, pun intended, as you'll see. Uh, you know how you're like a total fat ass. We're going to use that. We're going to grab that and we're gonna, like a, just a big old chunk of fat. And we're going to slap it onto the table. And we're going to, here's here's the thing, cotton candy machine. What do you mean? The cotton candy machine? What, what does that mean? We're going to put a cotton candy machine in your car. Don't you love that? Because you're fat? Like you, you should be... You should be jumping for joy right now. Like, I can't, I just, that, that pitch to him. I can't imagine being able to say that to somebody. It's so. It's fucking crazy. It's fucking, it's fucking crazy, dude. It's crazy. Further, the gullwing doors they installed on his car were removed after filming because the pistons which held the doors up blocked access to the seatbelts. Seth also expressed that it needed a lot of work done to make it a functioning regular driver, which they did not do. They added a lot of extra weight, but didn't adjust the suspension to compensate. So I felt like I was in a boat and every time I hit a bump, the car would bottom out and the tires would scrape inside the wheel well. The car also only ran for about a month before he had to save up his own money to replace the engine so so he went on pimp my ride and they did this stuff and then a month later he was just like and and here's the thing like if you gotta if you have to replace your engine nine times out of ten you should just get a new car like nobody's out here replacing engines Unless it's like you've invested a lot into the car, it's a special type of car that you specifically want, or you just, you know, you're a mechanic or you know a lot about fixing cars and you kind of think you can do something like that. Or you can, you can just do a replacement. It's like maybe cheaper for you to do it yourself or something. For the average person, if your whole engine needs to be replaced, you get a new car. But specifically because he had gone on this show, had all this stuff done on it, he was locked into a sunk cost fallacy where he was like, I can't just get rid of this car. It's like this special car that they did all this crazy shit to and I was on this TV show. So because of that, they essentially forced him 
to have to buy a new engine for this shitty car. They like gaslit him into buying a new engine. Because in any other circumstance, you're just like, oh, this car's fucked. Like, I just got to, I got to rent a new, I got to, I got to get a new car. I've got to lease it or put a down payment on it and you know, make payments. But no, I have to replace this whole fucking engine on this piece of shit. Justin Derringer from season six describes how before filming his submission tape, the crew smeared aircraft paint stripper on his car and unbolted his bumper to make it seem as if it was falling off. Justin also recalls specifically mentioning that he hated the color red. Yet in the end, his interior was almost entirely red. Further, the movie projector setup they installed in his car was removed after shooting for not being, quote, road safe. And the pop-up champagne bottle holder in the back seat was removed because MTV did not want to condone drinking and driving, even though they had already shown off the contraption on national television. Nonetheless, each of the contestants interviewed in the article still spoke fondly of their experience with the show. Jake mentioned that he had a lot of fun picking up his younger siblings from school in his car and that he spent years missing the car after selling it, stating that he had no major complaints. Justin expressed that he was a really shy kid before the show, but being on TV and having the car gave him the confidence that he says made him the outgoing person he is today. After the show, Justin joined a car club and spent five more years lovingly dumping his own time and money into the car until one day it caught on fire and burned to the ground. <laughs> it, it caught on fire. <laughs> what are the logistics of that? It's like, oh yeah, the... Uh... The flamethrower that we, the novelty party flamethrower we installed in the back of the car just uh, had a fuel leak and uh, yeah, just exploded the car. Oh, well. Well, that's that would be the funny thing that you wish it would be. Was that one of their ridiculous contraptions exploded or something like that? But I guarantee you that the reality of the situation is this thing was so overloaded with uh, with electrical wiring from all the shit happening it, all the TV screens, all the different modifications that it was probably just overloaded. And then it just one day, one of the fucking wires just caught on fire and burned the car down. Seth, the guy who had candy dumped in his backseat, had slightly more mixed feelings about the show. Seth claims he did enjoy driving his car after he put work into fixing the engine. Ultimately, Seth expressed, The whole situation was definitely not what I hoped for, and there were times I wanted to give it all back because of how frustrating it was. But now I look back and laugh. I have this really cool story that only a handful of people can really say they experienced. That makes it all kind of worth it. Does it though? Does it though, Seth? You got you got fat shamed on national TV for no reason. Absolutely no reason. They were just, MTV was like, hey, can we just like insinuate ourselves into your life and call you fat just just for the hell of it you didn't ask for this the article also interviewed co-executive producer larry hotchberg who in defense of the show claims that mtv had a tow truck driver on call and that they would attempt to reconcile any issues the contestants had after filming further stating that mad mike often repaired wiring issues associated with the features they added but that ultimately some of the cars were so old and rusted that they would have mechanical issues no matter how much work we put into them <laughs> Did they even tell you anything about like, hey, like, this is what we're doing when we're fixing no, the car? No, 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 I was not responsible for none of that shit. I look, I would be just, just as disappointed as the motherfucker getting the car. I'd be like, what in the fuck did they do to this shit right here? What? And, and, and here's the thing. Here's the, here's the thing. I was the face of the show, right? So, so just the, we talked about uninformed people earlier, right? I, I was the face of the show, you know what I'm saying? So people associate me with what happened to the car. 
I didn't do shit to that car. <laughs> I didn't choose the paint. I didn't choose the theme. I didn't tell them to put the chandelier or the motherfucking frog pond or the motherfucking bouncy house or the ju- the ball jumpy. I didn't do none of that shit. But I was the face of the show. So I'll be, you know, I, it, it well, people, was, I was ask, people probably after that came up and like there was the stories of the cars that didn't work. They probably were blaming you. And you're like, listen, I, I didn't do the any story of, of my life. People, people on my timeline talking about it's fucked up what you did to that car. <laughs> mad. But these niggas is really mad on this shit. Okay. They be like, yo, you is it really affecting your life like that? You got too much time on your hands, my nigga. Way too much. How amazing would it be, though, if Exhibit was the guy that was, like, you know, on the, like, skateboard thing, going under the car and, like, you know, sitting there with his little paintbrush doing the, like, you know, the the fucking heartbeat monitor thing on the painting on the side of the car. Like, all these guys are the kayfabe, but it's really just Exhibit doing everything. Yeah, this is like his grand vision. He's like, this whole thing is kayfabe about him, like having a music career and getting chosen to be the face of the show and all this stuff. He just had this idea where he's like, I just want to, I want to, I want a budget to create works of art. I want to modify cars in the most impractical way it's conceptual maximalism. And then he just he just contrived this whole situation so he could just like, he could basically just be like the fucking uh, John Cusack and being John Malkovich, just like this fucking masterful puppet show that nobody else in the world understands but him. Also, I, the um, that even though it's funny and it's a joke, it also, it actually kind of does a really good job of like showing the 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 cultural shift from 2004 to today, where in 2004, people were more than happy to kind of like watch these bizarre, unfortunate things being done to strangers and kind of like laugh at them. And this idea of like collectively just like pointing and laughing at people. And then now in in like mo- our modern culture, that has like shifted. And now people have sort of, they sort of take, they take pleasure in like the opposite, which is like coming after people for doing bad things and people like really get together and like collectively enjoy doing that. So the very thing that was done that people loved, which is like, let's just fuck this person's life up in a really funny way. And everybody's going to laugh about it and think it's hilarious. All the people now are like looking at MTV and exhibit and being like, what the fuck? Like, that's so fucked up. You did that to those people and like genuinely angry that that they did it to them. Culture, man. It's different now. (laughs) It it really, it hits different for sure. However, to be clear, engine work was done sometimes and there are even a few episodes where they replaced the engine entirely and even a couple episodes where the car was so bad that they scrapped it and bought a better conditioned car to pimp. One of the guys this happened to had a car that was actually two halves of cars welded together to make a functional car. But of course, MTV saw this as too much of a liability to even touch, so they scrapped it. Do you remember seeing that episode? Fuck no, I don't remember that. I don't remember anything. I mean, I remember liking the show and I remember I watched for years, but do I, could I tell you one car? Uh, uh wasn't there a car where it was a jacuzzi? The back of it got turned into a jacuzzi? That's, that's the one I remember. Yeah, I, I definitely remember the episode whenever the guy had two cars that were welded together to be one car. 
And um, I thought it back then, and I think it now, um, especially in light of learning that basically everybody who did this, like their, their shit just got fucked up. They just got like saddled with this barely working piece of shit that was super expensive and they didn't really want to get rid of it because of a sunk cost fallacy whenever they could have just gotten a better, newer car and just made payments on it. And that probably would have just been better for them, even if they were like financially struggling. There was a couple people, this guy included, where out of everybody, they got the good deal because their car was so bad that they just bought them a new car. And yeah, they modified it with weird shit, but they still got to leave with a new car that had no mechanical issues. It had none of the weird bullshit issues that the other cars had that basically made them paperweights. They actually got a new car out of the situation. And it was only like one or two people. And it's like out of all these people, there was like there was like two guys that actually got a good, satisfying outcome from the show. It is important to note that all the contestants interviewed for the Huffington Post article were featured on the show during the latter half of its run, when the show took place at Galpin Autosports and not West Coast Customs. Despite this, it seems reasonable to presume that similar occurrences were commonplace throughout the show's run. It is also important to separate the trickery done by the workshops from the trickery done on MTV's part. While the quality of work feels largely theater tech in nature, only doing what is absolutely necessary to achieve that desired look for the camera, the work done still displayed copious amounts of creativity and craftsmanship. Though disappointing in its own right, how contestants were treated and the trickery done before the cars even made it to the shop generally feels more disheartening. When re-watching the show, it becomes easy to catch little moments where the damage seems obviously faked. For instance, sections of paint that clearly seem to have been sanded down with power tools, revealing shiny bare metal with absolutely no surface rust, suggesting that it was done recently. Or small parts like shifter knobs being present in certain shots and gone in others, implying they wanted the interior to look rougher when they moved in for a close-up. Further, the contestant submission tapes, some of the very first shots of each episode, were filmed at rented houses with contestants' lines often being coached by off-camera producers. The contestants were then instructed to wait inside the rented house while Exhibit inspected the car until they heard a knock at the door. They were told that if Exhibit opened the door, they were chosen to be on the show, and if a producer came to the door, they were not chosen. However, from all the contestant accounts that have been shared online over the years, it seems that no one was ever greeted by a producer. Instead, contestants were likely already chosen before filming their submission tapes and only told this to ensure their reactions would be genuine. The house's windows were even blacked out to make sure the contestants couldn't see exhibit approach. While these reactions were real, at least some of the big reveal reactions at the end of the show were coached. Jake from the Huffington Post article said that during the final review, he just stood there saying, holy fuck. Then Big Dane, one of the Galpin Autosports crew members, walked him around the shop for a few minutes saying, listen, we put a lot of work into this. We expect you to be a little more fucking enthusiastic. Resulting in Jake giving an extremely over-the-top reaction in the next take. We can only imagine what they said to that one lady. Yeah, that, that, that woman had like the fear of God in her. They threatened to like take her children or something. Lastly, though the show made it seem as if the pimping process only took a couple days, in reality, contestants were without their cars for five to seven months. Though to be fair, some people have stated that this is a pretty fair time frame considering the amount of work that was done and the amount of cars that were pimped each season. While contestants were without their cars, they were reimbursed for rental cars. Although this was still a complication for many contestants who struggled to find rental agencies that would rent to them due to their age. Seth from the Huffington Post article claimed that MTV only paid for the first few months. He then had to start paying out of pocket and was not reimbursed for a full two years. So they were straight up like, hey bro, you're fat and you have to pay for this car rental for two years. 
And then Seth started crying and they were like, you deserve this and closed the door in his face. This whole show was designed similar to how those uh, the, the, the North Korean government fabricated that entire YouTube prank channel so that they could hire those ladies to assassinate Kim Jong-nam. This whole show was just designed so that they could specifically one day get this guy into the show and then just like destroy him psychologically. It's also absurd to think that these young kids had only known their crappy old cars, then spent seven months with a modern rental car, and then had to go back to driving a weird, unreliable car that probably felt way worse than the rental. The show inadvertently gave them a taste of having a useful, normal car, and then stuck them with the most absurd car on the road. Which is a great point. These people had like these, like that lady's truck was terrible. It was falling apart. The dude with the two cars welded together. These people had just like the fucking biggest pieces of shit you could possibly drive. And then for seven months, they just got to drive a normal, new... That's the real Pimp My Ride. It's like the Pimp My Class. Hey, do you want to just come up and live in like a middle class existence? Here, have a sedan or a Toyota Corolla or a Honda Civic. And then they're like, also... 30 seconds of, uh, you know, uh, global fame when you're on TV and they show you your shitty fucking, you know, Mazda whatever has been turned into a giant lightning bolt made of cheese. Yeah. Except for seven months, that like transportation is no longer a point of stress for you. It's just a whole line item on your daily allocation of stress just knocked off the record. As previously mentioned, with Exhibit gone, MTV abandoned the show. They instead chose to allocate funds towards a new tournament-style show no one remembers called Trick It Out. Each episode would pit two different crews against each other to create the coolest car with only two weeks and $15,000 to work with. It lasted just two seasons. And I actually do remember Trick It Out, but I don't remember anything about it, though. So that's how memorable that was. The various international spinoffs of Pit My Ride all ended within a few years as well. Although just last year, Pit My Ride UK was revived as a YouTube show sponsored by eBay. After the wave of clickbait articles and videos which followed the 2015 Huffington Post article ran its course, nothing of note happened regarding the show until June of last year when Exhibit took to Instagram to express his grievances with MTV and his parent company Viacom. Shedding a bit of light on the harsh realities of the entertainment industry, Exhibit revealed that his compensation was manipulated through the fine print of his contract and that he was seeking legal action to obtain royalties he believed he was owed. Essentially, Exhibit's original contract stipulated that a decent portion of his pay would come from merch, including his name and likeness and the use of his music on the show. He figured it would be a good enough deal and would pay out well once the show went into syndication. Unfortunately, after the show's conclusion, Viacom began attempting to cut Exhibit out of the show to avoid paying him royalties. Episodes released on DVD were re-edited to remove his music and the DVD covers themselves stopped featuring his likeness. This was a particularly harsh blow to Exhibit, who had always felt as if the show only became what it was because of his involvement. He called Viacom's move petty, but said he was willing to have a conversation towards reconciling this issue. So basically, they Alan moored him. They negotiated like kind of a bad paycheck for hosting the show. Like it was like low for what it was supposed to be. The deal was was tendered based off the idea that once the book went out of print, the the rights would revert back to him. And then he would like basically be able to make royalties from any Watchmen merchandise that existed. They were basically like, we're not going to pay you that much to host the show. But eventually, once the show gets into syndication, you're going to get merchandising rights from anything related to the show. So, you know, syndication of the show for your name and likeness and your music being used in the episodes and all that stuff and any other merchandise that's produced from the show, you make a royalty percentage from that. But then once the show went into syndication and once the show got popular, 
they basically like cut him out of the show so that they didn't have to pay him any royalties. So fucking shitty. However, in a more recent interview with Art of Dialogue, Exhibit expressed that he goes back and forth on the matter. While he still clearly feels his pay was not adequate considering his contributions to the show, he acknowledges that he was not well versed in the business side of things at the time. Exhibit concluded by stating, It was an expensive learning curve that I had to go through, but I still wouldn't do shit different. You know what I'm saying? Well, let me rephrase that. I would do shit different, but I would still take the opportunity. Which is like the, the, the defining difference between Alan Moore and Exhibit or people in these situations normally is like, it's almost like capitalism Stockholm Syndrome, where Exhibit clearly respects and finds like business and entrepreneurship to be like, important sort of like sacred calves and so he can't even like process the idea that he got screwed he has to like reframe it as like i was naive and i and it's my fault that i let them do this to me and now as a smarter wiser businessman i would never allow myself to be taken advantage of like that which is true but in alan moore's case he was like you guys are the fucking devil and fuck you whereas like exhibit can't let himself think that way because to him like business is a fundamentally good thing i mean it's it's the this whole story to me is just like such a weird time capsule on like multiple fronts that are things that are that kind of like echo what we're dealing with right now like the business side of it is obviously what's going on right now with hollywood with the writer's strike and hopefully soon the sag after strike um the fact that you can just like re-edit things and cut people out of the dvd releases which is a huge money-making thing a dvd releases don't happen anymore b a lot of contracts now have like authorial right where like once something is locked you can't change it i mean it might be different for like a reality show like that but i know under dga stuff like they can't do that legally um yeah, the wildly problematic aspects of it, the fact that both of us who don't give two fucks about cars watched all of these episodes of this show is like super weird. And I don't really have a good explanation for why I watched it because it was on because it was the only thing on like, I don't know. But I mean, the, but it, like there was like there was Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network and stuff like that. Like why? Like I, I still think back on it. I'm like, why did I? I like music videos. I love music videos. So I know that like a big re part of the reason why I watched MTV and VH1 is because I just wanted to watch music videos. But then somehow I got pulled down the rabbit hole of also watching Room Raiders and and uh, MTV Cribs and Pimp My Ride. And yeah, which is strange. Um, and also this, this whole thing serves just ending on this note about like the bad business decisions. This is also like a very poignant foil to the direction that MTV has gone in recent days where basically, basically like Pimp My Ride 2.0 happened. And it was this show called called Ridiculousness. And it's not it's not similar to Pimp My Ride. It's like a it's basically like a fucking TV show version of of like just react a reaction video like where just they just watch like Internet videos and go like, oh, my God, that's fucking funny. Um, it's just, it's just Tosh.0 basically. Um, and this, this, you know, the guy who hosts the show and created the show, Rob Deirdrick, who's like this uh, professional skater who had this show called Robin Big in like the 2010s, which was a reality TV show about him hanging out with his bodyguard. He basically created a situation where he created this and a few other shows, but he heavy, heavily negotiated with MTV 
to have ownership of the IP and for his studio to produce the content in-house. So it wasn't produced by some, uh, it wasn't farmed out to some other production studio by MTV. He produced it with his production studio. So he owned the IP. He owned like the, the pipeline of the production of the show. And the show got so popular that basically like Rob Deirdrich owns MTV now. Like it's just a ridiculousness channel. And he's like making millions of dollars. Like he did the exact opposite of what Exhibit did. (laughs) Yeah, Rob Deirdrich was just like MTV. Uh, no, this is going to be Rob TV. He's like, he's like, uh, I, I, I redlined this contract and like the MTV execs looking at it. They're just like. You just wrote in red lipstick, do the opposite of what you did to exhibit. He's like, yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think our, I think our points are pretty, uh, are pretty reasonable. And um, I feel satisfied with our turn in this contract negotiation. So uh, yeah, I don't see a problem. Do you, uh, do you have any closing thoughts on this episode? Any, uh, any final, any final things you'd like to get off your chest after talking about Pimp My Ride longer than anyone has talked about Pimp My Ride in a long time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's 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 a it's a strange time capsule of the early two thousands. It's obviously like very surreal to watch this and just kind of be beamed back into that time period. And it's so crazy because like the thing that they don't tell you about getting old is that things never seem old to you within your lifetime. Like whenever we were kids, we were th- we were thinking back on like I, I, we were born in the late eighties, and whenever our parents talked about living in the in the 70s and the 60s um we thought about those things as like oh that was like or 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 when my grandparent when my grandpa talked about living in the 30s and the 40s we thought about those things as like oh man like those were that was like a different era and and in my mind i'm thinking that like they're thinking about it the same way that like that was like this other era that they lived in and they're old so they lived a long time and but that stuff feels like it was a million years ago but the thing that they don't tell you is that when you get older, those things all seem contemporary still. Like the early 2000s just seems like not that long ago to me. It just seems like, oh, I mean, it was a few years ago, but it was still like relatively recently. But it wasn't. It was a long time ago. And I don't even mean like in span of years, but it was like a it, culturally, it was a whole different world. Like once again, the early 2000s feels contemporary, but... The things that people said and did and thought were okay and casually talked about was just night and day from the way things are now in, 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 a, in a way that watching that, watching those clips just brings a rush to you back of like, oh, like that was a whole different fucking time. And, and yeah, it's like, it's like, it's a time capsule in that way. It's pretty surreal to, to watch um, or to remember. Um, but also, yeah, it's like, it, it it's also just kind of crazy to see that and remember that sort of happy go lucky show that you watched that really didn't feel like it had a whole lot of weight to it. And then to learn that there was like, you know, shitty seedy things going on behind the scenes. I mean, it's common. We've done so many episodes like this where it's like, remember that cool thing, that innocent thing you thought it was, well, actually it was super fucked up. Um, this is probably the least fucked up of those things that we've done. But it's still just like, yep, of course, this this thing that 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 embodied just like light, fluffy entertainment. Of course, it had some weird, dark shit going on and people were actually unhappy doing it and all this stuff. And on that note, I'm Dave Baker and I'm Spandrew Spice. And also, uh, it's been a long time coming. Uh, I think this may have been something that happened like almost four or five months ago at this point. 
Um, but a while back, I made a promise to the members of our Discord server. Um, there's a number counting game that we do in the server where basically um, there's a channel and each person can add the next number in just the sequence of numbers. So one person says one, the next person says two, the next person says three. And you basically just see how far you can get before somebody messes it up. Um, and I know that sounds dumb just to describe it, but um, everybody who comes into the server uh, always says that it sounds dumb and then they end up getting just as addicted to it as everybody else. Um, but a while back, I told um, everybody that the first time we get to the number 300, which is surprisingly difficult, I would shout out the names of everybody who participated in that run of one of 300 on the show. And this was a while back, but Dave was in Europe and the, the scheduling wasn't right and it was just hard to do. So I'm finally getting around to it. And uh, also, I realized that I didn't really think this through properly. Um, so all I really have is the, your Discord handles to shout out. Um, many of you, I don't actually know your name. So <laughs> hopefully, hopefully me just saying your Discord name is satisfactory because I did not think this through properly. Um, but these are the Deep Cuts listeners and Discord members who uh, helped us get to the number 300 in the counting game. Mike Miller, Crash Underride, Jay Bard, who's also the admin and the creator of the Deep, Deep Cuts Discord. So thanks for that. That Ben is fake. Ella, with an exclamation point. Lawful Neutral Lewis. Um, we, have a, we have a bunch of Lewises in the server. Uh, there's Good Lewis, there's Evil Lewis, there's Regular Lewis, and there's Lawful Neutral Lewis. So that's, that's Lawful Neutral Lewis. Jackie Daytona. WEC Italian Jesus. Rachel. Aconite, or Asinite. Not sure which. Tiger Skippy. Andrew Bub, which Andrew Bub has been a fixture of the Deep Coats Discord for a long time. And literally just writing down his name and thinking about it in the context of saying the name out loud was the first time I ever realized that his name is like Wolverine saying his name. Andrew Bub. I just always read it in my mind as Andrew Bub. Like Bub was like part of the name. But there's a comma. And I just realized for the first time that it's supposed to be like Wolverine saying his name. I hate you, Josh. Jesus Chan. The Souser Effect. Stam Demick. Bunny. Andreas. Not good. Regular Lewis. That's the other. That's one of the other Lewises. Fapton Kalkin. Autumn the Frog. Diet Beepus. And that's it. That's everybody who got us to 300, baby. And this has been Deep Cuts. Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content. The incidental music for this episode was created by D. Catalano, whose music can be found at wekeepoddhours.bandcamp.com and Pseudocide, who can be found on Facebook at P-S-E-U-D-O-C-I-D-E with spaces between each letter because apparently Facebook doesn't like the use of the Latin stem side, and Dad Beats. You can listen to his podcast, Food Fight, a food discussion podcast, anywhere you get your podcasts. This episode of Deep Cuts was written by Armand Saheli. If you have a penchant for fascinating true stories and deep research and are interested in writing for the show, email us at andrew at boygeniusmedia.com.